This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirvan Mahati. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. How are you? Right. On a Sunday afternoon, I'm spectacularly good. You're time-travelling to Sunday. Well, yes, not quite Sunday. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Mate, you've spoiled the illusion. This is theatre of the mind. Yeah, here's the problem. We have agreed too much. We need yeah. some disagreement. All right. Let's, I disagree. I disagree. I disagree. Okay. All right. <laughs> Mate, we had a very full podcast on Friday, and so, as is our want from time to time, we thought we'd skive off a different part of the podcast and just do a pure mailbag, you know, rather than doing it as a separate standalone podcast on our Friday slot, we thought we'd add one this week, a little bit of extra value. We'll have to charge our listeners double, of course. <laughs> double zero is um, still zero. Anyway, uh, mate, <laughs> let's get on with our mailbag edition this Sunday. Hopefully, it's finding you well wherever you are around this wonderful country of ours. The first question, well, see, I want to ask David's question, Doc. Mm-hmm. The problem is he only sent it to you. And David should know by now, I'm the bloke who asks the questions around here. Well, you know, maybe David has a specific question that's just for me. Yeah, but... That's a good day to David, though. I have, I have, I have feelings, Doc. Wait, I'm, I'm, didn't he say that your podcast is great? We'll see, we'll see. <laughs> He says, hi, Nirvan. Sorry, I don't do any of the social medias, as I honestly find it very disappointing trying to talk to someone who has their head buried in their phone at the same time. Plus, typing was never one of my strengths, so I hope it's okay to send you an email. I think that's, that's probably pretty reasonable. Uh, he says, I joined Extreme Opportunities, that's your service, at the start of the year, and I'm really having fun with these moonshot stocks. I've always been very conservative in the past with share purchases, and I thought it was time to have a go at a couple of moonshots using your philosophy of three or four successes from 10, and hopefully help my granddaughters with their education in the future. That is awesome. We're really, really cool. That's awesome. I thoroughly enjoy Scott and you delivering your podcast every Friday afternoon. Okay, you're right. He did say something nice about me. Fair enough. You're at it. (laughs) You're out of jail, David. Um, he's even stuck in the Monash car park on the way home from work. Doesn't seem as near frustrating as it used to in the past, as I can zone out a little and listen to your entertaining and informative session. It's also very kind, but David, please keep your eyes on the road. We don't want to be responsible for any accidents. <laughs> if, if you're stuck in the car park, that's fine, mate. If you're, uh, if you're driving, at least, at least one eye, one ear on the road, mm. I guess. He says, given I've always been very conservative in the past, I've always ignored many of the various offers, such as options, etc., that companies have made other than dividend reinvestment. One of your recent recommendations sent an offer, and I was hoping you could perhaps explain it in plain language so I can determine whether it is worthwhile pursuing as I'm not sure what the data means in a share in the share context. So here's the deal. This is this is an offer that's already closed. So we can't, David, at this point in particular, I'll give you advice about this particular uh, announcement. But Doc, it's useful, I think, hopefully for David and others, if we explain what happened, how to think about it, and in general context, how you make a decision as to whether or not to participate. So here's the deal. Points Bet Holdings, which is one of your recommendations. We're happy to give that away now. Is it still a buy for you at Extreme Opportunities? Yep. There you go. So Westpac on Friday and points bet holdings today. Well, points back above. Points bet above. <laughs> Tell me very, very quickly what points bet does, mate. Just for our listeners. You know, uh, this might offend some people, and 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 uh, that's uh, a good way to start the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's all you know, here. And, and so points bet basically um, uh, provides points points bet based betting 
uh, opportunities to people. So you know, okay. people, you know, you Explain can bet. that for me. Yeah. So you can bet basically on, okay, there's a, let's say a game of cricket going on and you can bet on, you know, the, um, the margin of victory, for example. Okay. And then you can, you can say, you know, this margin of victory is going to be this much and you can make a bet based on that. So I think sp- Australia win by 252 runs. Yeah. So it's like a spread betting basically. Okay. So, there, so there's, there's, you know, the spread ba- betting online. Okay. Right. And as I said. So basically an online bookie of sorts with a, with a kind of a particular, a particular kind of focus around that spread betting. Yeah, category. and then the thesis here is that you know um, the U.S. in the U.S. The, a lot of this betting is actually legal, yep. and these rules are, funnily enough, they're not federal rules. They are actually statewide rules, right. and actually in some cases jurisdiction citywide. So, but that is opening up, and you know, because anything that's illegal, then there's a lot of black money. <laughs> right. Black, there's a black market, and of course, right. all the regulators want the black market to become the white market. Right. So the feds originally <laughs> had banned this nationally. That ban was overturned as unconstitutional by one of the U.S. courts. Yeah. And now states and cities, as you say, are allowing it bit by bit. Yeah. And points bet stands to benefit. Yeah. And points bet is basically has got all these, you know, and it's, it's a complicated market where you need to work with other partners and, you know, casinos and things like that to actually get get into that market. And points bet has been, you know, methodologically going and, you know, winning share. Nice. So the thesis there is that if they, if, you know, they're doing well here, they've got, um, but if, if they can win a portion of the U.S. market, then I think, you know, this is a flyer. So this is one of those, this is, this company is burning cash, which is why they were raising cash, yeah. which is why uh, David has this question. Um, but, you know, it has been, yeah, it's been growing its top line pretty fast. And and it's, it's, yeah, it's a flyer in, in the true sort of um, um, extreme opportunities spirit and at the, so yeah. high risk, potentially high return. Yeah, high risk, potentially high return. Let me get to David's question. He says, "This is he's copied this from the uh, from the uh, announcement, which is useful because then we can kind of break it down. Points Bet Holdings is offering you the opportunity to participate in the retail component of a one for six pro rata renounceable entitlement offer at an offer price of $3.20. Now, <laughs> let's break that down. Uh-huh. One for six pro rata. What does that mean? So this is this is a great question. So pro rata here basically means that you know proportional to your existing shareholding. Yes. You can get you can apply to buy yes one share for every six that you currently right. owned as of the date that offer was made. So I owned six hundred shares. Points by saying, hey, you can buy another hundred if you want. Exactly. All right. So that much we think we're right with. Yeah. That's the entitlement offer. So I'll skip yep. to the end of the term. So a one for six entitlement offer says you're entitled to buy one for every six you own. Pro rata entitlement. Now, renounceable is one of those yes. words that is a really jargony word that really doesn't mean all that much, actually, even in English, let alone in stock market jargon. But it's an important one. So this is an interesting one because, you know, some companies do renounceable, some yes. do non-renounceable. What do, they, what do those two terms mean? Mark? Yeah. So with the, with basically, you know, your brokerage account basically would show that you've got these rights, yes. you know, should show up on your account as you've got these rights, right? And if it is renounceable, it effectively means that you can trade it. You could basically sell it to somebody else. Right. Who can then use your right to actually acquire the shares? Okay, so let's go with non-renounceable first because that's the easier one. Yeah. If a, if a rights issue is non-renounceable, it's effectively use it or lose it, right? Exactly. You either buy the shares or you don't. Yeah. And if you don't buy them, then no harm, no foul. Yeah. But you don't get the opportunity. If you do buy them, you've got to pony up the cash and you're done. Yeah. When it's renounceable, there's a third option. You can buy them. So you, can, you can take up the rights. You can actually give the company the money. You can do nothing at all or... You can say, well, actually, I don't want to take up these rights, but they should have value, right? If the if the right to buy, in this case, $3.20, and I'll make some numbers up, mate, and this is not going to necessarily bear any resemblance to reality. I can buy those points bet shares, one for six at $3.20. If the then share price was 4 bucks, 
those those rights effectively are worth 80 cents each, right? Because if I yeah. can buy something worth $4 for $3.20, I should pay up to 80 cents for that opportunity because uh, you know, it's, if you said to me, look, you can buy my car for half price, but you've got to pay someone else 10 grand to do it. Well, if that 10 grand's worth the difference, I'm happy to pay that because it means I get access to a better deal. And that's what you're paying for when you buy the rights, or if you're selling the rights, that's what you're getting money for, is you're effectively giving someone the opportunity to earn that profit, and that should be worth something to you. Yeah, so that's absolutely right. So you could trade it, it'll be trading at a price, essentially the difference, slightly less than the difference, because you know if it's the same price, right. then effectively... Um, uh, the other person just buy in the market, right? Um, and it's a good way because if you didn't have the money or you didn't want to participate, whatever is the right, reason, right. then somebody else can actually take it up and you, you're you compensated for that. Now, I love that PointsBet did this, mate. Many, many, most Australian companies don't do this. If they do it at all, they're non-renounceable, which is a pain because it either means you have to pay up the cash or you get diluted. You basically have your ownership stake reduced and there's no other alternative. You literally either you lose, use it or lose it. It's a really, really crappy way of raising capital. It's basically holding a gun to your shareholders' heads and saying, either give us the money or you get screwed around with, right? In this case, these guys do it. Corporate travel is an only of mine that have regularly done it when they've done capital raisings. This is the, I would argue, only responsible, fair way to treat shareholders. They're not obliged to do it this way. So I have, have absolute respect for any company that does it this way. Um, someone else did it recently too. I can't remember who it was. But if you see renounceable entitlement issues offers, that is, you know you know the company is trying to do the right thing. I'm a big, big, big fan. And that is an absolute tick in management's book, in, in the director's book, when they do these sorts of things. In this case, you had the opportunity to either use the rights or not. Um, and so to some degree, Doc, I would, I'll, I'll, I'll propose... But the great thing about this is it doesn't matter what you do because you're going to get effectively the value either way. You can either buy $4 shares for $3.20 and make an 80 cent profit, or you can sell those rights for roughly 80 cents and make an 80 cent profit. To some degree, the beauty of this offer and why it's the, the right thing for, for any company to do is it leaves no shareholder worse off. Now, whether the shares then go on to grow more and you miss that opportunity is a different question, but at least in this, in this environment, you're actually... There's no there's no downside, right? And so it doesn't really matter, at least at a, at a superficial level, which option the shareholder chooses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, it makes it easy for them and it really, you know, allows you to be flex on your own circumstances in terms of, you know, whether you want to increase the allocation or not and so on. Right. Um, Last question, mate. Why would they do it? Um, well, they want to raise capital, right? I mean, this is a... Tell me about that. Yeah. So... I mean, as in, why are they raising capital? Yeah. yeah well, so the, why would any company need to raise capital? What, oh, what are yeah, they, what's so, the idea? Yeah. So, the, yeah, is the, yeah the, the company basically is, as I said, this company does not generate a positive cash flow in the sense that it doesn't have, you know, the cash coming from operations versus the cash being used in operations. They, you know, they don't match up and they're actually negative, right? And and that's mostly because you're you're spending, in this particular case, a lot on sales and marketing right. and, and growing. In, they're investing for growth in the U.S. and they therefore need uh, to raise money, right? And, you know, so when your company needs to raise money, it comes back to your shareholders and, and, and says, you know, give us money. And, of course, there's a placement. So placement basically means that they go to institutional shareholders and say, okay, do you want to buy shares in our company at this price? And then they come back to the retail shareholders and say, okay, you existing shareholders own shares. We can allow you to, or we will allow you to buy some shares using this renounceable, right. you excellent. Get the same deal, yeah, you, you, it's not quite the same deal because in the sense that, you know, it's capped at some value and right. it's proportional to your current holdings and you're not getting the preference and nobody came and asked you and they said, okay, kind of, <laughs> yeah, we right, are right, raising right. money with them and we also give you an opportunity yeah, to raise, okay. get some money. So it's not quite it's not the quite same. as good, but at least better than being left out altogether. <laughs> it's, it's better than being left out and being told <laughs> that we sold some shares to some other people. Right, right. right? And you got diluted and you 
you get nothing. Right. <laughs> Tough luck. So it's better than that. Um, so that that was the case here. And this particular offer, I think, was accelerated, which basically means that you know uh, they want to get it done very you better quickly. Bloody hurry, yeah. yeah but, but in other words, give me my, give me the money I want, and do it now. or 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 else. And it was un- okay. And many offers are underwritten, which basically means that the people or the banks or the brokers or whoever actually are carrying this. Uh, deal, they underwrite it saying that if there's a shortfall, right. they would buy the shares right. at the stated price. All right. So entitlement offers generally are a way for companies to raise money. Uh, the question of whether or not you should involve yourself in an entitlement offer comes down to whether you feel like the entitlement is at a decent price, whether it's the at a price you think is attractive, and frankly, whether it's the best place for your money. I've said before, Doc, I don't know if you have a, a view, but I've said before, I actually... I think the these sort of rights issues play with our psychological biases in a really meaningful way, right? Like if let's pick company X again just to avoid talking about points a bit. If company X comes and says, Hey, we're raising money, do you want to give me some more cash? Now, if that's a really, really, really great deal, if it's half the price of the current shareholding, you might be like, Oh man, that's an amazing deal. Yeah, I want to do that. Other times it's at a five percent discount to the to the current share price. Hmm. Now, unless you as an investor were already going to say, gee, you know what, if company X was five percent cheaper, I'd definitely buy shares. You should ignore, in my view, most rights offers because mm. it's almost never going to be the next best idea for your money. And again, not talking about points bet, but company X, mm. um, you know, if I own 20 companies in my portfolio and I've got 10 on my watch list, there's 30 possible places for my money. When company X comes out and says, hey, we're raising some money, do you want to give us some cash? We're all kind of inclined to think, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Completely irrespective of whether or not you would have invested in that company as your best idea. The, the, the odds that the current company and price is the very best idea you've got for your next investment is really, really low. I mean, one chance in 30, right? Just purely arithmetically. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, rights issues are tempting. You kind of feel like you should take part because, hey, I'm being asked to. It's just playing with that idea of the psychology of the thing in front of you is the thing you tend to do. If every company in your portfolio all at once said, hey, where do you want to put your money? You've got a thousand bucks. We're all raising capital you'd probably pick the best idea. But if only one company at a time is doing it, you're kind of inclined to think, oh, okay, I'll give them my money. It's a really neat psychological trick, but it's probably one I think that most investors should avoid. Your thoughts? Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, absolutely. Yeah, like, I mean, if the discount is substantial, then it makes more sense. If the discount doesn't isn't substantial, then, well, you know, it only, I mean, tip in my mind, buying into any of these rights offer ultimately boils, it's an allocation question. Yeah. Uh, which is why in, in extreme opportunities, we really don't, you know, maybe we should just, uh, you know, provide general thoughts every so often, but we don't mm-hmm. advise on any particular offer largely because it's a it's an allocation question. You need to decide whether you need, you want to buy more shares yeah. at the price being offered to you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's an, that's an allocation question that we don't deal with at uh, extreme opportunities. I'll, I'll, and one more thing, just, just from a disclosure point of view, I actually own some shares of points bet, so. Good man. Thank you. All right, uh, mate, let's move on from that one. That's a, a really good question. So thank you very much, David. Next question came comes from Michael, mate. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. Regular weekly listener. My Saturday drives are made very informative thanks to your podcast. Hopefully you're going for a drive today, mate, on a Sunday. Maybe you can just go for a drive around the block or you know, get the mower out do something so you can listen to this podcast edition as well. He says, moreover, after listening to your supersized mailbag last week, which I think is now, was that last week, last week, or maybe the week before last week? Anyway. Well, the last week's one came out on <laughs> Monday or Tuesday, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, Whenever it was. So. I thought I'd say thank you both for individually making unparalleled contributions to my financial and investing skill set. Michael, that is that is very generous and very humbling. Thank you, mate. If we're doing anything to help anybody, we're, we're, we're super excited about that. We, we do this, as I said, it's not kind of core part of our jobs, but we do it because we love it and because we want to help people. So if we have helped you and, and other listeners, then we, we are we are humbled uh, and, and always appreciate the trust and, and time you guys spend listening to us. So thank you. 
Uh, he says, I was hoping to get your views on robo platforms such as Stockspot. Thanks again and full on, Michael. Love the closer, Michael. Thank you. Doc, robo platforms, not Stockspot and Vigil, unless you have a particular view, but robo platforms in general, yay, nay, or meh? I have no views on this one. You know, don't you? I just, rarely I have no views on something. This is one of those things. Which, <laughs> Luckily for our listeners, I'm an opinionated bastard, so I've got a view. Ah, I have really no view on robot. <laughs> like, okay, they exist. <laughs> a lot of things exist. That's true. Both, both, both true. Shall I, shall I give my thoughts then? Please. I'll try and keep it brief. Michael, my <laughs> first time for everything. My, uh, my views on robo. Here's, here's the thing. It's a, it's a complex topic. I really look for most people. Doc and I think our business thinks, so you'd expect us to say this, but it's also true. We think you can actually beat the market by buying individual stocks. And if that's your view, a robo platform is not going to help you because they generally invest in ETFs or managed funds or active strategies. And so you know you're paying fees for that. And look, you pay fees for our services. So there's some there's some analog there. Generally speaking, though, we think you should buy individual stocks if you're going to invest. So that's that's the first thing. That being said, if you're not going to buy individual stocks, and for most people that might be the perfect solution, buy an ETF, go fishing, just to get invested in the market as a whole. Go fishing, uh, go and go shopping, go and spend time with the kids or the family. Um, whatever it is you want to do with your time, that's perfectly okay too. Many people don't want to invest in individual stocks. That's where robo advisors can come into their own. The the robo advisor charges their fees basically to help you allocate your cash across, and this is speaking very very generally, across a range of ETFs or exchange traded funds. If you're a high, young or high growth investor, if you're an old conservative investor, if you're somewhere in between, they will normally use some sort of I won't even say algorithm because it's not that sophisticated. Not not by way of being critical, by the way. It's just not. Um, you know, whatever whatever predestined, predetermined set of criteria they use to help you work out which ETFs you want to invest in in what proportion. That's kind of what they do. Now, that's not particularly difficult, by the way, for anyone to do by themselves and for themselves. But again, if you don't kind of want to do that for yourself, a robo advisor can be someone who can help you do that. Now, they will charge fees. So again, be careful of fees. As always, we want you to keep your fees as low as possible. Um, so look. I guess, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm in two minds. There are a whole lot of things that are suboptimal for in purely rational terms, right? You don't need to pay someone to help you buy some ETFs. We've talked about ETFs a million times on this podcast. We'll do it another million times. You can do that without paying any additional fees. You can buy your own, create your own mix of ETFs to suit your particular risk appetite, your particular goals and objectives. And you can do that without paying anyone else a fee other than the brokerage you pay to buy them in the first place. For most people, that's a cheaper and therefore better option than using a robo-advisor who's basically adding a layer of fees for creating a service, providing a service that isn't super difficult to provide. That being said, as I said, so that's that's the that ultra-rational solution. That being said, it may be that some people, maybe yourself, maybe others, might simply say, yeah, I could all do that myself, but it's too hard. I don't really know and I won't get round to it and I'll, I'll forget or kind of won't make the investment because I want to spend the money on something else. What robo-advisors do help you do is basically automate your investing process. And that also has a huge amount of value. So if you are someone who wants that additional help, the additional automation, the kind of, you know, take the take the decision out of my hands, take the process out of my hands, just go and do it. I think they provide a, a valuable service. So like everything, there are cheaper and better ways of doing stuff that other people do for you. Uh, by the way, if you think you're a better stock picker than I am or Dockies, you can do that without buying our services as well. So that applies to us as much as anything. But if you think the help will be, by definition, helpful, uh, then a robo-advisor can be useful. 
As always, find someone that you know and trust. Make sure you're not paying too much in fees. Compare the providers. Make sure you know what you're getting for the money you're spending. And check for any hidden fees like account keeping fees, transaction fees, withdrawal fees, all that kind of good stuff. Generally speaking, though, if you can find a low fee, reputable, well-regarded robo-advisor, they can be helpful if you find yourself in that position. How'd I go, Doc? I think you did well, and you well, you were reasonable with your time. <laughs> I'll take I'll it. I'll just say reasonable. I'll take it. <laughs> Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The next uh, question came as a part of a part question, part comment, part, uh, well, I have a feeling you're going to get on your high horse here, that's all I'm saying. We got a question from Pete on Twitter, and he just says, maybe a topic for the Motley Fool AU podcast, Scott and Doc. Mm-hmm. And it was a tweet from the ABC 730 Twitter account, uh, like the ABC 730, good, good program. The, uh, the tweet says Australia's big companies are too busy paying billions in dividends to spend much on research and development, but that may be changing. That was the tweet. I don't imagine Pete wants us to comment on whether or not it's changing. I have a feeling Pete wants to know whether we agree with the proposition that Australia's big companies are paying too much on dividends and therefore too little on research and development. I have a, th- I have a feeling I might know your view on this, mate, but I'll, I won't spoil it. What do you reckon? <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> there we okay. go. Here, here's the biggest problem, I think, with Australia's big companies. And this is a thing I think is, it's a problem also because of the super funds. I think they're all related parties in this. Uh, I wouldn't call it a crime, but you know, it's a <laughs> <I'll> look out. <laughs> it's, it's, they're Please all don't re- mention names, mate. I don't want to go to court. Uh, they're all related parties. But here's the thing Australia's big companies want to pay dividends, but they don't have the money to pay dividends. So they raise capital. Then they, you know, so they basically take money from you. <laughs> And then give it back well, to you. That's just the banks, to be fair. I wouldn't oh, say Woolies well, and Coles are the same. Some of them. <laughs> they don't have the money. They, they've got some franking credits, you know, like, you know, they attach the franking credits. Yeah, this is, a, this is like an epidemic in my view. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so companies don't nearly do as much. You know, the, the, some of the smaller companies do. Uh, so I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, but... But the big companies, if you take, Woolies, if you take <sighs> Woolies, Coles, CSL, BHP... A couple of the banks, News Corp, Telstra. CSL does. So CSL spends on research and uh, CSL has a, like a solid R&D pipeline. Okay. Um, and then I could say that, you know, Woolies really, there's not much research in our research and development that Woolies is going to do, right? What <laughs> what are they going to research in, um, you know, it's hard to do research in how do I grow a vegetable or, you know, keep a vegetable <laughs> keep <laughs> on the fresh. shelf, keep it fresh. And right? that's kind of, I think that is the challenge, right? Australia's yeah. big companies aren't particularly innovative by either culture or by business line. So business line, I, yeah. I mean, arguably, it's both true and false at the same time, is it? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, you know, we've got big oligopolies out here, which, you know, basically because, you know, it's a small country. I mean, it's a large country in, in, in landmass size, but, you know, it's a small country in population-wise. So, therefore, you know, there's only so much, uh, so many different companies we can support. And you know, these companies make a, uh, you know, <laughs> more than a dime. And uh, what do they do with the dime? So they can't invest for growth because there's only, you know, you can have only woolies in so many different corners. And yeah, so in, in some sense, that's mm. correct. What, you know, and one could argue that they maybe they were better off investing that money in maybe other startups and things. But then the question would be startups or other other innovations, you know, in the industry. The question would be, are they even capable of doing that, right? It's fair to say Woolies has wasted not ju- not, <laughs> not, just, not just a little bit of money. <laughs> On its masters, uh, yeah. roll out of its hardware stores, it bought and then sold the Easy Buy business, trying to become an omni-channel retailer. I don't want to pick on Woolies, by the way; they're hardly the the worst culprits here. But 
Australia's companies don't exactly have a great track record of acquisitions. No, and I wouldn't say even uh, even Australia's companies. I mean, many companies in these industries find it hard to like. I mean, it's That's not fair. just an Australian. I mean, I don't know if Kroger's in the U.S. would have. You know, what would they do? Like, I mean, Kroger's is basically like a supermarket, like Woolies. I mean, yeah, they probably no. So it's. I think part of part of it is the challenge, but there, you know, there are other companies which which do. So in that sense, you know, it's 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 an easy criticism to make. Yeah. So I realize that. Uh, but I do think that some companies underspend and they could spend more. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's a there's a bunch that essentially have well, they have nothing better to do with the cash than to give it back to you, which is probably okay. So it's a funny it's a funny it's a funny problem, right? Like I, I think if I'd asked you if I'd asked you a different question, which was do Australia's companies as a whole spend enough on R and D? I'm pretty sure you'd say no with a with a pretty strong sentiment, yeah. Yeah, it's no, but it's because a large mu- portion of the market, like you know, a good sixty percent of the market, maybe is yeah. is what I call the old economy type of thing. Like yeah. it's stuff that you necessarily need, but they're not necessarily going to be fast growing, innovative, and things like that. I think that's the biggest problem. Is it's fine to say people aren't spending enough on R and D. In a perfect world, would we have a more innovative economy? Maybe. It's hard to blame the individual businesses, though, right? Like there's enough of a track record of people wasting. <laughs> the old thing of if, if they pay you dividends at least you know you've got the money they're not going to waste it on something else um, hard to hard to find too many great examples of Australia's listed companies having spent better money on acquisitions or R&D rather than actually paying the money to shareholders and letting us reinvest the cash ourselves right yeah yeah I, I don't disagree I mean, I mean you know it's it's, it's, a, it's a criticism I make but again you know if I if I think about it it's hard to it's hard <laughs> it's a problem but without a solution right it's it's it's, it's even if, I don't even know it's a problem it's an easy criticism to make but you know if it's like in a level one thinking was, ah, you know these guys are not you know they're just pumping dividends and returning back right? but what do you really do yeah. I mean um, in the US companies when they don't have excess cash they basically don't because they don't have a you know a dividend system that is like you know favorable they basically buy back stocks right. I mean which in the it, US is a very tax-effective way of increasing shareholder value. It's more tax-effective here to pay a frank dividend. Yeah, right? it's one and the same in that in in that sense, yeah. right? Uh, you know, I, I you know, I just I think that there are instances where you know, buying you know, basically asking for the money and then paying it back. It, that that is a little bit of a, <laughs> of a funny exercise, but not it all companies indeed. do that. Conversation for another day. We should go into that though. It's a, it's an interesting topic, mate. Next question from Tardis. He says on a recent Money Hacks pod. Oh, this to me. I think he's having a go at me. On a recent Money Hacks podcast, you criticized a bank, starting with A, ending in Z. We never criticize anyone. For offering (laughs) cash for taking up their home loan. I did. I mentioned that maybe a two and a half grand incentive to take someone's home loan over someone else's is probably a misdirection. It's probably making you focus on the wrong thing. You get away with a higher interest rate by promising someone some cash rather than getting people to go for the lowest rate possible. Why don't you not like cash, Captain? It's like cash, $2,500. You can go on holidays. You know ho- I love even more? You can go on holidays. I love 50 grand over the life of a loan rather than 2,500 bucks. Now, call me old-fashioned. I'll take the long-term but, money. But Thank you. you don't want to go on a holiday now. <laughs> you live that. only once. That's exactly YOLO. why I ended up YOLO. doing it. That's exactly why I ended up doing it. I'm, I'm not a YOLO kind of guy. YOLO being you only live once, for those of us who aren't necessarily Instagram followers. Uh, he says, um, but I recently refinanced to ANZ to get a much better rate than previously. So to clarify, cash incentive is not always a bad idea. I think that's a really important point, right? And this is, again, the, the thing that's rationally, obviously the best. Um, is still the best, right? But it actually may be that a less ideal solution is actually still good, or maybe even great. And in this context, TARDIS is dead right. The the reality is he may not have actually, or she, I guess, I'm not sure who TARDIS is, um, he or she may not have necessarily gone and looked for a better rate if not for that cash offer. So to some degree, I'm not entirely sure, TARDIS, whether you mightn't have done better with another bank. You might, it might have ditched you two and a half grand and maybe you saved even more. 
over the life of a loan. So that's still possible that you maybe didn't get the very best offer. But sometimes, as our boss would say, Doc, great can be the, uh, perfect can be the enemy of good, I think is his phrase. In other words, just because it's not the very, very best doesn't mean it's still not a good choice and a better option than doing nothing at all. I think that's probably fair. I think so. Next one is from Mark. Now, Mark, Mark says, uh, we're talking about something else, about the value of incentives. He says, I recommend a book called Incentivology by Jason Murphy. So there's a, there's a recommendation from Mark on Twitter for a book to read about incentives. I was talking about bank incentives, and we didn't quite get into that yesterday on Friday, Doc, about the, uh, the, the, the Westpac issue, but I think incentives are a large part of the problem. So that was the context of this tweet. He says, on that topic, and he says, insert obligatory comment uh, compliment for the third best podcast in Hungary. Now, Mark, I appreciate the attempted compliment. We're actually the best podcast in Hungary. We're just the third most popular. They're different things. Definitely. Just because we're the third most popular doesn't mean we're not the best. We are the best. <laughs> he says- Scott so, is the best. Well, no, Doc's the best, really. No, I just asked the questions. <laughs> but Mark, I appreciate the compliment. We do. We do. Uh, he says, do you and the Doc have a recommended list of two or three books each that form a great foundation of your investing, finance, and economics ideas? That's a really good question. Now, I've sprung this on you at the last minute, Doc. So would you like me to go first while you think of some ideas or have you got some on your head? I've got some in my head, All actually. Right. I'll go give, for it. Um, I'll give him three. Excellent. And well I'll, I'll give him three from sort of, you know, you can go foundational to intermediate to like, you know, university or Ooh, whatever. Oh, there we go. It. So You get uh, some value here, Mark. This is off the cuff and Doc's already got it for you. How's that for bringing value? So one book that I thought was really good for foundational investing, I'll actually give two now. Oh, look um, out. Uh, the little book that builds wealth by Pat Dorsey. That's a very good book. This is a very good book, and you know, you know and I'm not, you know, I I, I, I take issues with uh, the the uh, Berkshire style of investing or the Warren Buffett <laughs> style of investing, but Ooh. this is basically that style of investing. <laughs> it's actually got a lot of useful information and can be really. Uh, a useful base. It's a good starting point. It's right? a very good starting point. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of the stuff that I say about Berkshire and Warren Buffett, and you know, I say it in jest. I disagree yeah. with many things, but uh, <laughs> in the uh, but some of the you know the high level um, view is very use- useful. So that's that's very useful. The then if you like sort of like uh, if you're into. Um, swinging type of investing, and when I say swinging, I don't mean like swinging. That got that got uh, <laughs> that got after after dark pretty quickly. Yeah. and and I also don't mean day trading. <laughs> but 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 if you if you are looking for like multi baggers, then yeah. one of the books that I thought was really interesting to read <laughs> is called a book by a guy called Christopher Myers, and it's called Hundred Baggers. Who doesn't like Hundred Baggers? This is an awesome what is a hundred bagger doc? A, a stock that goes up one hundred times. You all you need so is about one hundred percent, but about hundred times. So every every hundred dollars becomes ten grand. Ten grand. Yeah, that's that's okay. I'll take that. that. You all you need is like a couple of those. So if right? I buy this book, you're guaranteeing me some hundred baggers. Well, saying? I'm not guaranteeing you anything. Yeah, <laughs> but well, this is a really good book. I mean, it, it's a good book because it, it's analyzed a lot of the hundred baggers. This is U.S. market based, but you can sort of apply right. general mm-hmm. principles um, across any market effectively. Yep. So I think those two are foundational. I find them um, to be very interesting. Yep. Um, I will mention a couple others. Uh, one more, I think. The If you're looking at general trends and tech, I find tech interesting, then uh, one of the best tech books written by uh, the founder of American Online, um, Steve Case, 
it's called the third wave. And I found that very interesting because he really was able to nicely distill sort of the evolution of the okay. internet to the various technologies that have evolved over, you know, since basically from like, you know, going from 1980s to like the current state. Mm-hmm. And he looks at it as a sort of, you know, one, two and three waves and what has happened. It really gives you a good view of tech and where, you know, he doesn't really say where tech is heading, but it gives you a good view of where tech came from and what nice. all happened. And that's a good context to have from an insider who has been there, done it, seen a big deal, having one of the biggest deals of its time, and then, you know, sort of things, see things fizzle away and, mm. you know, become a pale shadow of its former self. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so it's, it's like the, the, the full um, uh, shebang. Then if you want to read... Um, uh, another book that I really liked of late. This is all coming. This is one more. This is the last one. Lots of value, dude. Good one. Um, this is a favorite book of mine, uh, and this is really a little bit wonky, but it's a book called Capitalism Without Capital. Oh, you do like that one. I, I really like this book, um, and it talks a lot about how the economy of the world has changed, where you basically don't need a lot of capital to create value. Yeah. And this is a book. It's been written by economists, uh, I think, out of the UK. It's by authors are Jonathan Haskell and um, Stan Westlake. This is a book that I'd recommend reading sort of at the end of reading all, all those certain nice. four books. That's it. Very good. Um, capitalism without capital, really cool concept. You think about just a quick, quick editorial on that one. Back in the old days, if you wanted to build cars, you had to build a factory. And then when you've managed to get a lot of people to buy your cars, the factory is running at full capacity. Well, you got to go and buy a new factory, right? You got to build a new factory, and that costs millions and millions of dollars for a second factory, and then a third factory, then a fourth factory. Each time, lots more capital required to get that growth. These days, capitalism without capital does what it says on the tin. If you want more subscribers to your accounting software online, or you want to sell more uh, memberships to Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Share Advisor, or Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, for example, uh, you don't necessarily need to add capital to grow those businesses because the provision of that extra service doesn't cost you or cost you almost nothing. Maybe sometimes exactly zero or certainly not much more than that. And that can be a, a big deal and a big change. So very worthwhile. I'm going to throw a couple, Doc. I'm going to take a very different tack to you. Um, I'm going to start with, the question was about finance, economics, and investing. So I'm going to start with economics in a different place. I'm going to start with a book called Gitonomics. Now, Ross Gittens is the Sydney Morning Herald's economics writer, has been for decades. I'm old enough that Ross Gittins actually gave a lecture for economic students before the HSC exams, back when I did my New South Wales leaving exams. Um, and he was a lecturer then, so he's been around for a very, very long time. It's a really, really nice fundamental grounding in economics itself. If that's specifically what you're looking for, that is great. Second one I'm going to give uh, a mention to is actually one, we got a, a mailbag from Jordan. I was going to mention this doc already, so great timing. Jordan says, hey guys, thanks for the shout out on your previous podcast. A quick shout out to Scott and Anir Barn for recommending the, to read The Little Book on Behavioral Investing. It was a great read and changed my mindset massively. You lads deserve a shout out. Well done. Now, I wasn't just saying that so I could get a, uh, we get a, a nice shout out from Jordan, but The Little Book of Behavioral Investing is fantastic. It won't tell you how to invest or what to invest in. What it will help you with is understanding your own mindset and frankly, our own psychological biases. It's something I bang on about a lot and for very good reasons because it matters a heap. And so if you can get your mind right, your psychological approach to investing right, I would argue that's probably as important, I think I'd say as important, maybe even more important than the companies you buy because even the, the smartest investor who buys the best companies can't make money if you're forced to sell them or you force yourself to sell them or otherwise make bad financial decisions. Knowing yourself was it Know Thyself, I think was one of the great philosopher's lines. Knowing yourself is really, really important. Um, on top of that, a couple of additions. Um, despite Doc's 
blasphemy about Warren Buffett. The essays of Warren Buffett is a very, very good read. It takes his shareholder letters, puts them in topic order, um, and gives you a really good grounding in finance and investing. Even if you don't invest like Buffett, it's a really nice way to ground yourself a bit like Doc's other point. And lastly, one, you mentioned um, capitalism without capital, Doc, and some work done by, and 100 baggers done by some academics who look back at success and see what made it or what, what makes success. Uh, good to great. Old book, a couple of decades old now, Jim Collins and... Jerry Porras? Or Jim, uh, that remember. is one of my another favorite books. Good to great. Great, great book. It's a business book, not an investing book, but it really goes to the heart of what made for companies that diverged from their competitors in a meaningful way and went from, as the title suggests, good to great. Uh, really, really foundational, really enjoyable read, really interesting, some really great snippets and tidbits in there. Well worth reading. So have, have, a, uh, have a read of that and the other ones we've mentioned. By the time we got through those seven or eight books... Come back, we'll give you some more. The, uh, I'll just quickly add, Good to Great, one of the great things about Good to Great, this house, you like my pun? Is, oh, um, there you go. Not is, one of the good things, one of the great things. One of the great things. Oh, <laughs> there you go. So w- w- it's fantastic because uh, a lot of books about successes basically just, you know, they make up a story kind of thing. Yeah, right? Right. They make up a story. So this is a very scientifically done book. Um, and it it looks at all these various variables and factors that come into yep. play, and it does this industry comparison across different books. Again, a lot of American companies there, but you know, it really helps you understand separate out luck from you know, yes. uh, you know, chance and you know decisions made by management and how and what impact they actually had yep. in the outcome. So this is a really interesting book to read. It's a bit advanced, but yeah. Based on data, not anecdote, right? So you yeah. can't just look at three companies and say, oh, I think I know what makes them all the same. They've literally gone through and with vigorous academic research, lots of footnotes, lots of lots of endnotes, great, great detail. Another question, Doc? Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. And this one comes from Blurb Man. He says, so, hey, Scott, continue to love the podcast and ongoing education. As you've been gracious enough to answer a couple of my questions, can I get a promotion to friend of the show? So he doesn't want to be a regular correspondent. Doesn't want to be a listener. Blurred man wants to be a friend of the show. Can we? Can we give him that denotation, Doc? Can we? Yeah, me. Promote him to why, friend of the show. Why not? All right. The good news, Blurred man, for you is now you're a friend of the show. You're entitled to well, exactly nothing, but you're a friend of the show, and we appreciate it. So thank you for listening, and thank you for corresponding. Anyway, I have a question about rebalancing my portfolio. I bought into an LIC, which initially comprised about 10% of my portfolio, but due to good results, nice problem to have, is now closer to 22 or 25%. As part of a good diversification plan, should I sell a portion and reinvest into other sectors or continue to hold? I'd say my investment position is as a long-term accumulator and I'm mindful of tax. Is it okay to continue to hold if you feel further gains are likely? Fool on. Good question, blow man. And because it's a very good and difficult question, I'm going to throw it to Doc. <laughs> so we, we so we answered this question. Um, we did in in the previous podcast. Although I have slightly different thoughts. Okay, give me your give me your thoughts, yeah. and we'll go from there. So I mean, again, like I mean, if it becomes too large, I would say you know you want to sell a bit to sort of you know make it comfortable. Um, but you know, my my usual standard response is that if something is you know within sort of tolerable range, then I just basically say I don't add to it, but mm-hmm. I add to something else, and and that way I rebalance it. You know, I I basically add to another. Um, another idea, and that's how I go about it. Mm-hmm. I I completely agree with one exception, mate. This is an LIC, a listed investment company. It happens to be MFF, which is uh, Magellan's global investment fund. 
I wouldn't normally agree completely with selling down some, I think, to minimize the, the, the or to, to redress the balance. In this case, because it's an LIC, it's equivalent to an ETF, it is diversified by its very nature. And so I think to some degree, while 25 cents a lot, and, and frankly, you still might want to sell it down because the investment committee could screw up. There could be changes to the sort of investments they own. These guys, MFF, I'm pretty sure they own at least 10 different companies. And so you can kind of think about this LIC as effectively 10 positions worth 2.5% each rather than one at 25. And so I have to say, as long as you're not investing directly in its component parts. So if I said, well, I've got a, a LIC with Australian banks and I've got you know, 80% of my portfolio and other banks, that's effectively the same thing. As long as you're not investing directly in any of the core positions it owns, you could arguably have an LIC or an ETF comprise much more of your portfolio than you would with individual positions. So yes, I'd think about balancing. Yes, I'd think about selling down if you're uncomfortable. But I have to say from an ETF or an LIC perspective, I would be much less uncomfortable or much more comfortable, depending on which way you want to put it, uh, having an LIC with a larger proportion level with the individual company. Cool. I actually don't disagree with that. That's fine. You're supposed to disagree with stuff, mate. That's what happens here. I didn't even know what that uh, MFF thing was. <laughs> so you're already ahead of me there. There we go. There we go. All righty. Um, let's go back to another question from Giles. He says, hey, Scott and Doc, love the podcast. I was hoping to borrow your high horse. Mate, not a chance, Giles. It's a very, it's a very finely trained, well-managed nag. It is performance athlete. You don't just, you don't just borrow... You can't what? borrow this. This, no. this. this is like a derby racing kind. Mate, this is, this is this is premium horse flesh, mate. This is the sort of thing. You're going to have to pay a lot of money to borrow the high horse. It's a, it's a, it's a, well, it's a donkey. Um, he says, I recently convinced my brother to start investing. Good man. He only has a small amount to invest. So I suggested to him the Comsec Pocket app after hearing about it on the podcast. Excellent. Good so far. He, um, it claims to have to cost, um, it claims to, in air quotes or quotes, to cost nothing to have an account ever. However, to use the Comsec Pocket, you must open an account with Commonwealth Bank, which has, wait for it, a $4 per month account keeping fee. So therefore, I'm concerned others, other listeners may be putting in 50 bucks a month, paying $2 for the trade and getting stung $4 for the account keeping fee. Therefore, paying 12% for the pleasure of owning an ETF. How about we not only have hashtag get a better rate, but also hashtag get a better bank. I'm inclined to almost take that as a comment, Doc, but I would say for what it's worth, absolutely right. Giles is bang on to say if you've opened a separate account and you've only put small amounts in and paying a, a lot of money for the for the account, absolutely a problem. Uh, you may want to think about changing your transaction account as well if you're paying extra for the account keeping fee. And absolutely total cost will, should, and does matter a lot. Your thoughts? Yeah, I have nothing. Like I think that's, that's bang on, like right, right on the money. Like, I mean... I believe this is true because it seems to be true for my account uh, mm -hmm. with Commonwealth Bank. If you have your monthly or um, you know, um, it, you know, fortnightly salary coming in or money coming in, then you don't get charged by Commonwealth Bank. Many of the banks actually don't charge you an account keeping fee unless it's a business account, in which case I think they do. Um, so if you have, yeah, in that case they wouldn't, and in that case it's fine. But yeah, I, I mean, you need to look at the overall cost, total cost of everything in proportion to the investment amount is really meaningful. So yeah, that, that's a tool. I, I agree with the comment. Nice one. Very good. Thank you, sir. Uh, all right. Let's move on to the next question from AJ. AJ says, hey, Scott and Doc, as always, love the podcast and love your and Doc's work. They'll have to admit my favorite section is other people's questions on Mailbag. Again, I have my issues with that, AJ. You're lucky you're getting your question asked at all just quietly. I have a new question for the podcast. I'd love to hear what advice you and Doc have in terms of learning about portfolio balancing 
as your portfolio grows? This is a common question, mate. So we're getting lots of portfolio questions this week. Must be the must be the time of year for it. Over the last few years, I've managed to slowly chip away and invest close to 80 grand so far. Nice work, AJ. However, now that I have a decent amount to lose, I find myself worrying about the day-to-day losses and the possibility of a big crash. That is really fascinating and very common, I think, AJ. Yeah. After reading, I actually just bought a government bond ETF to change my weighting to 80% stocks via ETFs and 20% bonds. I'm young. I'm 28. Yes, you're very young, mate. Extremely young. And investing in the long term. But I found the anxiety of being 100% in risk became difficult psychologically as my balance grew. Even though logically, I know over the long run, maximal risk should equal maximal return. I'm curious what advice you'd give to young investors on how to learn to weight our risk and what reading materials or websites might provide good education. Thanks, AJ. That is a really, really good question, mate. So, you know, we lots of questions about portfolio balancing, but this time not about stocks in a portfolio, but the mix between stocks and bonds or something lower risk. So I guess first question, mate, AJ's specific question is, how can I, or I'm curious what advice you give to young investors on how to learn to weight our risk and what reading materials or websites might provide good education. Okay, for the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to use his real name and not use his short friend. No. He asked us to call him AJ. He asked us to call him AJ. He did. <laughs> then we can't, they can't use his real name. I, I, yeah, no, AJ, AJ, we do know AJ's actual name. AJ said, please, if mind, please call me AJ. So okay, so we'll use the pseudonym, AJ. Um, in terms of what to do, okay, so here's the thing with bonds, right? I mean, bonds are safe, but bonds don't pay any real return. Yep. So I don't invest in bonds. And so um, when you say no real return, let's go through what bonds are. Bonds are basically a fixed interest instrument issued by a company or a government. Yeah. It's equivalent. Well, it's not exactly equivalent, but it, it, the best way to think about it for, for novices is it's basically like a term deposit where the other side of the party, rather than being your bank, is a government or a company. Now, it's higher risk because it is a government or a company, or at least a company. Uh, and the yield can be a little bit different to a term deposit, but it's kind of the best way to think about it, right? Yeah. So, so in this particular case, I think he said government bond. So yep. if it's a government bond, then you know the counterparty in this case is government, could be Australian government could be, you know, the European bank or whatever, right. and in, uh, or the European government or the EU. Um, whoever, whoever has, basically, you're going to get a coupon. Basically, you're going to be paid an interest uh, during the course of the holding period. And then at the end of the holding period, you get your capital back, yep. um, uh, which, is, which is effectively like basically getting an interest on a term deposit. Most of these bonds would, you know, uh, or most of highly rated bonds, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the AAA rated bonds, for example, uh, would, be returning what two percent maybe at best. So if you bought two now, I reckon that's probably about right. Yeah, yeah. two maybe, but you know that, the ten-year Australian bond is actually at one point six percent right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why I said effectively you're not getting anything. It, it's, <laughs> that's it's, right. It's as good as um, holding cash in your um, mm. in your savings account. Mm-hmm. Well, not slightly better than that, but you could po- possibly get a little bit more by putting it into a term deposit, which I would I would rate is. Mm. It's pretty safe, especially um, if the amount invested is less than the threshold that the government is willing to guarantee, right? So if the government is willing to guarantee, then you're you're actually okay with just having cash. Yep. Um, given this context, I don't invest <coughs> any amount in in bonds. Yep. And um, you know, most of my investments are in stocks. I do have cash, which sits in the offset account, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, again, this is this is a personal thing. I mean, you know, if this makes you feel good, that's very important because you right. need to feel good to be able to deal with um, <laughs> exactly volatility. Right. So, yeah, that, that's the key one, AJ. I think, you know, look, I don't think, 
You look. I don't think Docker. I necessarily believe that risk and return are exactly the same thing. They're, they're pretty clearly not necessarily. If it was exactly the same, there was a linear relationship. Then in theory, you end up with the same return. So if you took low risk, low return, high risk, high return. If the risk was real, then your return would also be be reduced, right? So it's it's a bit of a furphy. It works in academics, doesn't work in the real world. That being said, you're right that if you end up with a lower volatility investment like a bond, for example. And we need to be careful with those too because they can go badly. If a company goes broke or a government goes broke, you actually can lose all your money. Now, probably not going to happen for Australia or the US, for example, but if you had Venezuelan bonds or Russian bonds in the past, you can actually lose you know, most or all of your money. So be careful there. We would never suggest that we think bonds make a great way to maximize your return. So that's absolutely right. That being said, as you've already mentioned yourself, this is about managing your own psychology. And in that case, I think you're doing exactly the right thing. Frankly, if you're saying to us, hey, guys, I needed to buy some bonds. I needed some fixed interest because I just couldn't deal with the volatility, then that's exactly what you should do. And you're doing exactly the right thing. So I would not, I'd say keep doing what you're doing. As and when you feel more comfortable, I think you should be more in stocks than you are now, ideally. So if you can get to that point psychologically, then great. By the same token, in you know, X months or years time when the market crashes, if you feel better about having those bonds, and I think as Doc said, I actually would agree, I'd probably go government-backed term deposits rather than bonds, but it's much of a muchness. Um, you may feel better with that. So the optimal re- optimal return over the long run is almost certainly going to be stocks. That being said, the whatever you need to do to keep you in the market, to keep you investing, adding to your portfolio is worth far more than whatever the, like it's been again, this, this episode and last talked a lot about the ultimate theoretical rational decision and the right decision aren't always the same thing and it sounds like again we can't give personal advice but if you feel like you need to have more in outside stocks in some sort of fixed interest some sort of less volatile asset class then it sounds like you're doing exactly the right thing doc no i have nothing to add to that i think that that's that's the right answer beautiful my question from midi the lab midi the lab on twitter hey guys good work on the podcast thank you this is um, i think it's he midi the lab Hard to know, he or she or... I think it, it doesn't say. Lab could be short for Labrador, so we may be talking to a dog here. I'm not it sure. could be, yeah. Dogs are sending us questions. About, <laughs> uh, <laughs> someone said this podcast went to the dogs years ago, Doc. But, yeah, uh, apologies to the real person who sent us the question because, you know, <laughs> we just, you know, we're not implying that the real person is the dog, so we're not doing that. And dogs are wonderful, oh, by the way. You might not so. be, I am. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like dogs more than people most of the time. I like people too, but I like dogs. <laughs> Doc is struggling, by the way, with a cough. He's, doing, he's struggling valiantly through this. So, mate, well, well done. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pushing you through. And apologies for that, mate. But well done. Uh, Media Lab says, "Good work on the podcast. I'm looking at starting to invest with my partner. We both put away 200 bucks each week, then invest, most likely in ETFs, each month or two months. I was wondering what is the best way to do this. Can you get a joint brokerage account?" I have my own CompSec account, but it might not be the most tax-effective way when we sell if all the shares are in my name, not to mention very safe for her having everything in my name. Thanks in advance. Keep up the good work. I love this question for a number of different reasons, mate. I'll talk about those in a minute, but as always, I'll give you first shot. Yeah, so I mean, this is this is this gets to uh, this gets to more complex land. You know, you have a partner, and um, um, yeah. So I mean, here I think the best thing to do is to talk to a financial advisor. Get some advice. advice. Uh, I mean, there are many ways to structure it. I mean, you can structure, you can have joint accounts. Um, they may have some advantages, also introduce some disadvantages as well. You could also own things via um, a like a, a trust um, or or a company, which would have you know two of you as directors, for example. That's another model of owning um, instruments. In which case, I guess there's a little bit of you know company lives on, but the people may not live on. Same thing, sort of you know um, apply to trusts. 
uh, which has its own set of complications, in, uh, let alone the additional costs and burdens that come with it. So those are sort of the, I mean, and the third option is basically, you know, you can have two different accounts with, you know, two of two people mm-hmm. individually investing, but, you know, yeah. you basically consider, and that maybe is the simplest, but you consider this the assets as, as a whole, instead of consider them uh, as two separate pieces of assets, you can consider them to be part of the same portfolio, but just under different names. Yeah. And that might be another way of structuring them. So that yeah, they're all different ways of, mm. of handling it. What works best for you um, is really, you're the best person to decide that. And, you know, I can't really, that's what I can say. Yes, agreed. Uh, we can't give personal advice. We don't give personal advice. We always have the disclaimer, by the way, in these programs, and it's for very good reason. Uh, disclaimers are not just legalese that we have to throw in there. Well, we do have to throw it in, but it's for the right reasons, right? We never, ever, ever want any of our listeners to construe anything we say as personal advice. Um, always consider how it works for you. And if you don't feel like you're capable enough to do that, go and see a financial advisor. Yes, they cost money. Don't ever pay them, by the way, a percentage of your assets. They're going to rob you blind. Uh, but, but go to a fee-for-service financial advisor. Pay them what they're worth, which is hopefully some good money. Get some proper advice for you. Um, I can't say that strongly enough. Midi, a couple of thoughts, mate. Um, the first is, or she, um, uh, the first is, look, I think structurally, as Doc says, there are different ways you can do this. Um, given, it sounds like, I don't know how far into the relationship you are. Um, the reality is going to be legally anyway, and we're not lawyers at all, but legally anyway, at some level, um, what's yours is hers and what's hers is yours at some point in your relationship, right? The laws around um, splitting of assets in, in de facto relationships uh, probably protects both of you in some decent way. That being said, as you allude to, some people actually want to have money in their own names, right? They just don't feel comfortable not having that money if it's in your name or her name or both. Um, it's always good to put the, and I, I love the fact you asked the question, by the way, it's a really cool way to put it, knowing and acknowledging that maybe she won't feel great about all the money being in your name is really important. Um, you know, we, we, we believe in financial independence for both men and women. Uh, the old line is, is used by a lot of women that, you know, a man is not a plan and we think that's exactly right. So, um, great that you're thinking about that already. In an asset, legally at the end of the day, if you've been together long enough, what's hers is yours, what's yours is hers. They're going to, the court's going to split it anyway. And so there is no protection based on the name, but your partner may feel better having something in her name. I think that's a sensible idea. It does make sense over time to either use, as Doc says, a, either a trust structure or put the money in the name of the person who's on the lowest tax bracket. Um, that makes the most logical, legal, rational sense. Again, as I've said lots of times, and I probably will say forever, just because it's the most logically rational, the most optimal theoretical solution doesn't make it right for you guys. Um, A trust is probably the best option if you have a large enough asset base to make that cost worthwhile because you can then stream the income to either of the parties involved and potentially down the track kids uh, under certain circumstances. So think about that. Um, Otherwise, look, I'm I'm probably... If you're going to consider the taxation issues, a joint account's probably the worst way to do it because the court will normally assume, or the taxman will normally assume that it's owned half and half. Now, that's not unreasonable, by the way, but then you can't elect how you want to split up that tax being paid. So a joint account's probably the worst option because it just obligates you, well, sorry, the worst option if you want to try and be active around the tax implications because it, op- it obliges you to split it a certain way, which is exactly not what you want to do. Um, I think two separate accounts where you can put the money in the name of the person on the lowest tax bracket probably is the most sensible or a family trust or similar. If you can uh, justify the cost, you have to have an asset base that's either currently or going to be large enough to make that worthwhile. Any more thoughts, Doc? No, I, I think you covered it all very nicely. Next question came from, comes from Brett. Mate. He says, I have a question about dividends. And this is a really good one, mate. So, so sit back. Relax. He makes a good point. Ask a good question. I'm expecting a good answer, mate. So no pressure. <laughs> um, Brett didn't say we had a good podcast, though, so I'm not sure if we could even bother answering his question. Should we ask it or move on? 
I don't know, Brett. I mean, Brett Mitch, you could at least say something nice. Would have been kind, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like, we're I mean, we're only human. We're like trending three podcasts here. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I mean, I'm struggling with my voice here. And poor Doc, he gets nothing from you, Brett. I get nothing. I, I don't need I'm, your praise, Brett, but I'm at least you do the right thing by Doc. I'm just, just a little disappointed. But okay, we'll still, <laughs> we'll still try to give a good shot. Just because you're a nice bloke. I appreciate that. Yeah. Our listeners will appreciate it too, mate. He says, I have, I'm wondering whether dividend income can be misleading in its message of value to shareholders. Generally, when a stock goes ex-dividend, the value of the stock reduces by the equivalent amount, which is true. We saw this recently in the big banks, he says. Let me frame my question by using an example. Hypothetically, you own a thousand shares at a value of a dollar in each of two companies. So you've invested two grand in total. Both of these companies are exactly the same in every way, except company A pays 10 cents per share dividend and company B pays no dividend. Would I be correct in saying you, after the dividend is paid, you have $900 worth of company A and 100 bucks in cash? The share price is reduced by 10%, 90 but you have been given a $100 dividend. Yes, that's true. Company B has $1,000 still in shares. Also true. So the total amount of money you have is the same. Dead right. Would there be any difference from a tax point of view of the company A dividend and simply selling 100 shares of company B? It seems to me the company B gives you much better flexibility. If you had a well-paying job, you probably wouldn't. You'd probably prefer to have company B and keep the money invested in the shares. Alternatively, if you're taking time off to work or study, travel or volunteer, you may need the income from your shares. In either case, company B is preferable because you can sell the shares as needed. Is there any benefit of the dividend that I'm not thinking of? Thanks again, Brett. Now, this is a great question, Doc, and this is one that played out in real life. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, I own shares for the for the record. Paid a dividend last in 1965, <laughs> and then never again, because Buffett said, hey, I'm good at this thing. I'm going to keep the money. I'm going to invest for you. That's going to give you a better return than if I gave you the cash. And by the way, if you need the money, sell some shares. Now, that's been statistically proven, literally mathematically proven, to have been the best idea for Berkshire shareholders. So in Brett's case, that would have been smarter. In what circumstances, though, is a dividend preferable to a company that doesn't pay a dividend at all? Yeah, so I think if two companies are identi- exactly identical, like what, which is what um, um, Brett is saying here, yep. then you know theoretically there's really no difference, right? I mean, right. in the sense that from a, I mean, if you think about enterprise value, which is basically what the company is worth today based on its, you know, uh, market cap yes. plus the cash or the debt that it has, then yes. it should be effectively the same because right. the company has earned hundred bucks but has not paid it should effectively be showing up that hundred bucks on its correct value, yep. right? So any retained profits increase the value of the company itself. Yeah. Or you can pay it as dividend, but they should be the same thing. They should be the same thing. So, I mean, in effect, they're effectively the same thing. Now, the difference here might be that if you regularly need income mm-hmm. and you need it at like, you know, a quarterly frequency or you need it at, you know, half yearly frequency, the it is harder to, you know, sell the shares at that proportion and get that dividend because, largely because the market tends to be volatile and shares tend to be, you know, share prices do not necessarily, I mean, you know, if we... That's a good point. Yeah. So if the share market was always efficient and always correctly valuing the company at its should-be enterprise value, then I think in theory this would work. So if that $1,000 was the real value of the company <clears throat> and it always traded for $1,000 because the market was always efficient and you could sell whenever you wanted to at your proportion of that 1000 bucks, you'd know what you can get, right? Yeah. But at different times during the year, that company's shares might trade for anywhere between 750 and 1200 bucks. 
Yeah. Even though the real value is still $1,000 just because the market is volatile. Yeah. So I think that's the thing. And then the dividend basically removes that volatility out of the process because the company, assuming the company's managers know what they're doing, they know that, well, we'll be able to generate this much dividend we can or this much earnings, and therefore we can decide to have a certain payout ratio, which is we can pay out a certain portion right. of our of our earnings. And back it's real to cash, our, so you don't have to worry about what the market values it at. Cash exactly. is always cash. So, so that's the advantage. And, and really, dividend focus is good for those people who really want earnings. Um, and then the franking adds a little bit, you know, an icing on the cake for you. So that's the difference. If you're looking at long-term compounding and you've got a business that can reinvest the cash to grow its business and therefore compound your investment, that's a better case. Exactly as you used the example of Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Warren Buffett basically saying that, you know, leave the money with me. I'll find other businesses to buy. I'll invest them in the stock market. I will, you know, compound your wealth. And I've seen some really crazy numbers. Like, <clears throat> here's, here's a great great example. I saw this on Twitter, and this may not be accurate, so I'm not quoting anyone. <laughs> but it, it seems accurate. It, it seems now, every year, Berkshire Hathaway gets exactly half the total amount it has invested in Coca-Cola. The total amount of cash it has invested in <laughs> right. Coca-Cola shares, it gets back in two years, right. in dividends, right. right? So that's you know, in a way, you can say that's very astute investing in the sense that you invested at the right time in, in in the right company, and now you're getting back your cash is coming back uh, just via dividends, right? So that's all right. So if you've got a if you've got good capital allocator, if you've got a business that has got growth potentials, and really you don't want the dividend because right. it's best best compounded. On the other hand, as we were talking earlier today, like I mean. Or and this might be in a different podcast because we were talking today, <laughs> but it might be an actually a different podcast. Stick with us. Stick with us. But stick with us. Um, then, if you if you have a company like say, I know, let's use a you've got a retailer that is not really growing very fast. It's got a lot of cash that's generating because it's very profitable. Right. Well, what does it do with that cash? It's really not. It's better for that retailer to give you, you the shareholder cash instead of it trying to make a crazy acquisition. Correct. You know, become. Um, uh, a SaaS company <laughs> or become something else that it is not, right? And that's the thing, right? Because that cash, if it keeps it, doesn't do anything with it. So you've been very kind about about Berkshire. We talked about Berkshire and Apple last week, the week before, saying that both these companies have a heap of cash. That's One almost, company's slightly better. That's, that's my opinion. It's earning almost nothing on the cash, regardless of the company. The, the earning power of that cash is about the same, which is effectively zero or close enough to it. Um, they could have given that money to shareholders who could have reinvested that money elsewhere. So to your point about the low growth, no growth retailer, if you're not going to grow, if you're keeping that money, you're effectively, I would say robbing shareholders. That feels a bit emotive. But if I can if I can take that money and reinvest it at 10% in another company, or you're going to keep it and earn 1% on it, well, you better bloody pay it out because there's no justification you keeping that cash unless you think you can use it positively down the track. Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Yeah, and it, it really, this also boils down to the type of investor you are, right? Some investors sure. are happy to not get the cash now and reap the cash later, whereas yeah. some investors want the cash now. And it's really stage of life question. It's the type of investor question. And yeah, and, and I think you know that's why we have a market which has all these different types yeah. of options. Yeah. I'm going to add something too, mate. There, there is a, uh, the question was specifically phrased without tax, right? And so all things being equal, the only question is, is the money better? Is the money going to earn a better return with the company or with you? So the $1,000 is still $1,000. The question is, what does that hundred dollars of retained earnings generate over time? And that is the that's the theoretical answer to your question without including the tax. When you include the tax, by the way, it makes a massive difference because if you're getting a fully frank dividend where tax is paid at thirty percent, if your tax rate is it happens to be thirty percent as well, close enough to it, then effectively you're paying no tax at all on that dividend. If you sold the shares and banked a capital gain, you're going to pay the capital gains tax at your current prevailing rate. So there are. 
you know, there, there are real, or half your prevailing rate, I should say, there are real differences in terms of the way that tax is treated. And it does depend pretty dramatically on your tax rate and also what proportion of the sale is capital gain and what is just the, the share price or, or you know, the, the actual amount you put in. So if you sell shares for the same price you bought them for, there's no capital gains tax to pay. If they've gone up 10x, then you're going to have to pay a decent chunk of that sale as capital gains tax compared to a tax advantage dividend. So your ability to use Frankie credits and your ability to offset the capital gains tax also kind of matters. It gets a bit messy. Overall, though, I think generally speaking, I'd be pretty happy with either solution. I think, I, again, it depends on the reinvest. Bottom line, for me, it depends on the reinvestment ability of the company. If they can take the 100 bucks and use it really wisely to grow future profits, then keep the money, a la Warren Buffett, or at least Warren Buffett in the past. If you can't use the money and you're going to simply leave it sitting in there and not earn anything on it, then, hey, give me the money because I want to go and try and find a better investment opportunity. How'd it go, Doc? I think it went well. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I'm pretty excited about this question. I think this is the, certainly the first in a little while, but I think that's the first question maybe ever we've had from a female listener. It won't be ever, actually. I'm pretty sure a long time ago we had some. Girls, if you're out there, if you're listening to this, please send us some questions. Give us some thoughts. Uh, lots of our questions from blokes, and we love our blokes. We love the we love all of you listening, no matter what gender you are. Uh, but we love the idea of women getting more involved in investing. So, Angel, thank you for sending us your question. And not only that, on Instagram talk, see Instagram power. You know what's even cool? So, so you know how you know uh, we're blokes. We've been called cool cats. Not only not only called cool cats, called cool cats by a lady. So that makes me feel pretty good. On Insta. On Insta. I know. Maybe I need to get back. I to feel Insta. 15 years younger already. <laughs> it might change my resolution about not being on social media, well, ex- with the exception. <laughs> so, Angela says, hey, you two cool cats, being on Instagram and all. Love the podcast and think you'd be worth every cent of the $1 per month subscription. That was, um, we're not going to put the price up, don't worry, but that was your comment, I think, last week, week before Doc, saying you think we're at least worth a dollar a month, aren't we? <laughs> I'm, uh, more than a dollar. Well, apparently double at least. Um, Angela says, I have a couple of questions. One, share prices generally reflect the market's expectation of future performance. Yep, bang on. But where do you go to find out what the market is expecting? That's a very good question. Is it a good question? (laughs) It's an awesome way to kind of turn the whole idea on its head, right? Mm. So the share price is this. Well, what does that mean? What's your answer? Yeah, this this is this is this is where uh, some magic comes into play, right? I mean, um, so the the right answer is nobody really knows yep. where what the comp what a particular company is going to do in the future, right? And and the reason because it's even probably companies management don't know what it's going to do in the future because you know there's always so much uncertainty around yep. what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, right. But. You can you can uh, you can look at the company's past. You can look at what they're saying, what they're currently working on, what yep. they're currently delivering. Some businesses are steady as they go. Um, you know what's going to happen. Like you know, as I keep banging on, like Woolworths is basically dead. When I, Woolworths is not dead, but what I mean is, <laughs> you know, there's only so many people. Who, there are a lot of people who go to Woolworths to buy their groceries, right, myself right. included. They're going to come go keep going to Woolworths to buy their groceries. So we know what they're going to do. Yep. We know what this business is going to do in the future. And we can sort of guess, we can guess what their growth prospects are based on sort of population growth um, in Australia, right? Um, so, I mean, so in many cases, people are basically guessing, analysts and people who look at companies and individual investors are guessing what a business is going to do in the future. And that's really, 
is one way to think about it is there's this range of outcomes, right? Somebody's bullish, somebody's not bullish, somebody's bearish, and uh, you know, and and overall, in aggregate, the market comes up with a view that this is what we think the company is going to do in the future, yep. and therefore, based on that, the company, assi- the market assigns a value to it. Now, uh, often as investors, you basically either, you know, if you're if you're agreeing with the market, you're basically going to get like a market-like return. If you're going to disagree with the market, then you, you know you could disagree on the on the upside or the downside, mm-hmm. and and that is really um, based on your view of the company, your analysis of the company, your analysis of the company's space, your analysis of the company's opportunities. Um, and and I, th- I think yeah, as as you know, in in stock picking, effectively, you don't have to be right all the time. Yep. But if you're right, say six times, or in in some case, and or if you're making larger bets, you could even be right maybe four times or five times. But if you're making bets that can allow you to, you know, depends on how much upside you're looking for. Yep. Then you could also do just fine with even getting five right. So you don't have to get everything right, but you know, you have to just assume you have to realize that you know, you're not going to. Nobody knows the future, and there's a range of outcomes that that's likely um, out there. Yeah, so I mean, that's a really good question, a really hard question. <laughs> exactly. Mate, a couple of quick guys from me. Uh, first is you actually can get what they call consensus estimates, uh, and from um, uh, some brokers have them, some uh, research providers publish them. Morningstar does. Comsec has it on its own website. Um, you can get some of that. I will say, for what it's worth, that. The, the premise of your question assumes the market's right, and I think that's probably the other thing I'd be mindful of. I I don't. I'll do the Julia Gillard thing and I'll, I'll say I don't agree with the premise of your question um, in the sense that you probably don't want to start there. You probably don't want to start with, hey, what is the market thinking? You want to start with what do I think and then work out whether based on what you think, the current share price is reasonable or not. Um, otherwise, what you can do is kind of bias yourself into believing that market somehow smarter than you are, knows more than you do, somehow is automatically right. If the market was always right, there'd never be crashes, there'd never be booms, there'd never be big movements up or down in share prices because the market would always be right. Um, and so to some degree... Uh, you know, the answer is, where do you go? You go to a research house, you go to your broker's website. Generally speaking, though, I'd start with the reverse. I'd say, hey, what is the company earning? What do I think that can grow at? And is that a reasonable price to pay for those shares? I'd rather do that than try and do it in reverse and break down the estimates. The other thing you can do is you asked a question, which is going to go to this exactly. So I'll, I'll just touch on it very quickly. You can do what they call a reverse valuation or reverse DCF, and I'll get into DCF in a second. But a reverse valuation, you can kind of work backwards, right, and say, okay, well, if earnings are going to grow at this rate, if the um, the appropriate discount rate, which again is a jargony term, is this, then this is what the growth must be expecting, or this is what the share price must be. So you can kind of work backwards and say, hey, if Woolies is really worth 40 bucks a share, it has to grow at X percent a year to justify its current price. That gives you the market's kind of inbuilt expectation. Um, so you kind of can work it backwards. I, I, it's not super useful. I'd probably generally steer most people away from trying to do that and start with first principles, which are simply, what's the business? What does it do? How much is it earning? And how much do I think they can grow by? And then work out where you want to pay that price for it. Doc, and your second question. Seeing that share prices are a reflection on, on market expectations, which we just did, the valuation of the company can be overvalued. Through my studies, there are several valuation methods with DCF being the most common. How does an investor get access or do DCF valuations on a company to work out what the real valuation is? Or is there another method to work out the real valuation? Hope the question's made sense. She finishes by saying, love your work, so keep it up. And then P.S. I'm giving you guys praise, but I'm not related to either of you. Must have spent too many hours on the podcast to know how you would respond to praise. And just sweet talking us nicely. And it's worked, Ange, because you got your question answered. Thank you very much. We don't necessarily need praise, do we, Doc? We're, we're, we're humble, normal people. We're very humble. We are. We're very humble. We don't need people. praise, Ange, but uh, suffice to say it worked. Uh, mate, so you're not a DCF kind of guy, but but 
real valuation is kind of the core of Angela's question here. How do you get access to the DCFs? What is the real valuation? Talk to that just for a second. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Ange, here, like, I mean, for many companies which have, you know, steady cash flows and so on, you can, um, I think what, what, what Scott was referring to is is probably a, a very good starting point. So the, instead of doing the DCF, actually, so the, I'll, I'll backtrack. So DCF basically says you have a certain cash flow, free cash flow today, mm-hmm. which is, and then you look at the amount of free cash flow you're going to be generating uh, in years, say, you know, uh, one through 10, and then some terminal value, which basically captures what's going to happen after the year 10, but all at one go. Mm-hmm. And the, the basic idea here being that um, cash in the future is worth less than cash today. Yeah. And therefore, you're discounting, you're, you're assigning a discount to the future cash, um, which is, and then you're going to effectively discount significantly uh, the cash that you're going to get in year 10 onwards. But however, right. you know, if you assume the company is going to be around for a long time and that's what the terminal value or the after the 10 years is capturing, then a lot of value is going to be just there. Right. Right. Now, you can start with, with today's cash flow and sort of, you know, uh, make some assumptions around its growth rates. You can do you could do a couple of things. You know, you can have a bullish case, you can have a bearish case, you can have a neutral case, and that gives you a range of possible outcomes. One of the things that people get you know, one of the things this is, you know, it's not necessarily a problem, but it can be a problem, is people get carried away and then think that my DCF value gives me this company is worth $10.53. And I love it when people have 0.53 and they're going to two decimal places to find the accuracy for something. <laughs> the future, nobody can see the future. How yeah. do you know it is worth $10.53? You don't. Um uh, my own preferred method is that if you want to do a DCF, you want to really look at a range of potential outcomes that you think are likely, um, and that should effectively give you a pretty wide range of numbers. You know, like if you're looking at a company, it could be anywhere between say eight dollars to like twelve dollars, and you can say that's completely useless because that's like fifty percent. <laughs> the range is fifty percent wide, right. but that is probably more useful because. One of the reasons people build these models is to see what are the sensitivities in the business, and you get a good idea of okay, if you know, um, you know, there's a fixed cost to running the business, and this is how the operating leverage in this particular business. These are the knobs that the business can turn, and part of the reason to do a modeling exercise is to basically get an understanding of the various knobs in the business and the various yep. things you can turn in the business, and it yep. gets you better understanding of the business, not necessarily a particular number. Yep. Now. If you are thinking, you know, what Scott was alluding to, the reverse DCO, that's very, actually, that's really handy to identify what you could say potentially undervalued uh, opportunities, right? And that's because you could say, well, let's assume that, you know, the company is going to grow at just a fixed rate, and it could be a really small number. Like, you know, you could say, let's let's, let's assume that the free cash flow is just going to increase by 5% mm. from now, uh, effectively, perpetually, <clears throat> or 3% or 4%. And then if you use that, as sort of a guide, and then you you know use that, and you say, okay, well, how much is actually the if you know how much is the company valued at that, and how much is the market actually assigning today? You could say, well, the, let's assume free cash flow today is like ten dollars. Let's 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 calculate, assume, let's figure out what's the perpetual growth rate being baked in by the market. And so, you know, sometimes you can just look at that and say, well, you know, I really think that the market is being very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you could, that could be a really good buy point uh, for some. This sort of thing only works for well-established, you know, steady blue chip type of ideas. It really does not work for disruptive companies because for those, many of those don't have free cash flow today. And then there you're making really, um, I would say bets based on, you know, what the 
you know, the eventual future may be how much operating leverage there is in the business. And when I say operating leverage is once the business has been built up, how how much cash can, you know, essentially flow from the top line to the bottom line. Right. And DCF is not really a very useful tool, in my opinion, uh, for those sort of businesses, you know, and, and because again, there's a lot of other variables, you know. I, I I would I look at you know TAM. I look at you know sort of the inherent leverage there in the business, and I look at sort of I try to project multiples and see how it might look in the future. I think that's a really good answer. I think there's a couple of things on that doc. I actually I'm gonna I'm gonna controversially say that I don't think that's miles away from a DCF. And I think what I what I'm gonna what I'm gonna suggest is that I, I don't know if you necessarily agree with this. I I, I, tend, I think you might, but you may not. Um, there's a general view that underpins a DCF, which is that any business is only ever worth the future value of all of its cash flows, right? There's no other reason to pay for a company or to value a company as anything other than the cash you get from it. If I said to you, you can buy the local news agent, your question to me would be, well, if I pay $100,000 for the news agent, how much cash am I going to get back a year between now and effectively forever? Um, you know, maybe I get back 10 grand a year in profits. Okay, well, I can start to work out how much do I want to pay for that news agent based on its profitability. Now, Easy when there are current profits, as Doc says. Harder when you're saying, well, NewsAgent doesn't make any money just yet, but the area's growing. There's going to be more houses built in the area. There's a new train station going in. So at some point, it's probably going to make money. But right now, it's losing money. But trust us, it's worth something. Now, what Doc does is looks at the total addressable market. In this case, he'd say, well, there's going to be 40,000 new houses in the area and two new train stations. And there's 15 new magazines being being announced to be published. And we're going to sell lottery tickets. And so overall, I think that could be worth this much based on this market size and this product range and the leverage that might happen when it finally makes money. And that's absolutely what he's just explained. Someone else might actually do that with a DCF and say, okay, we'll use one, two, and three, we're going to lose money, but that amount of money is going to be slightly reducing. And year four, I think it's going to be slightly profitable. And then over time, it's going to grow by this rate over time. They actually may have been with the same either valuation or frankly prepared to pay the same price, but from two different perspectives, because both of them are saying, what is the long-term profitability of this business? And do I think today's price is attractive relative to that profitability? I think, as Doc said, I actually don't, I very rarely do DCFs these days, largely because, as Doc said, the range of outcomes is massive. The false precision is is misleading often, or at least not very helpful, particularly when you've got a big range of outcomes like that. And humans also find it really, really hard to put large numbers in spreadsheets. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Google's probably a good example. Amazon's probably a good example. Maybe Google is actually profitable or decently profitable. The growth of Google and Amazon in, in, in revenue terms, just look at the top line for a second, of 20 plus percent for effectively decades, certainly in Amazon's case, is not something like almost no analyst could have bought themselves to put 20% compound growth. Because if you do that, multiply that out, it's thousands of percent, right? Very, very hard to, with a straight face, say, I think Amazon's going to go at 20% per annum from 1997 to 2019. 22 years of 20 plus percent growth a year. That number goes from, and as it, by the way, turns out, the shares are now worth 800 bucks a piece. They are at some point worth $3 a piece. Anyone who'd said, hey, I think Amazon's going to be worth 600 times in value on the basis of a DCF in 22 years' time, they would have been laughed out of almost every analytical classroom and, and fund in the world because it just feels like too big, too bizarre, too weird a number. And that's why the growth investors got this one where the value investors missed it because they were able to say, hey, global commerce is worth this amount of money. Amazon is this big. They're growing this fast. They seem to have an idea and a concept that works. That business is going to scale really nicely. Now, whether you think Amazon's worth the current price or 20% less or more is kind of a different question. But at $3 a share, was it worth a heap more? Well, the value guys said, oh, maybe it's worth 10, maybe it's worth 15. The growth guys went, this could be a $2,000 company at some point. And it was the growth investors who invested early on and were right because they'd kind of dared to dream a bit bigger and hadn't succumbed to the 
difficulties. Just that the, the again, I talk about biases a heap, but not you know, no no analyst is going to put twenty percent a year for twenty years in a spreadsheet and try and present that with a straight face. It just it feels like it's just too silly a concept to put forward. Except that was exactly what ended up happening. And so DCFs can be a bit. They can be a bit constraining with a growth company. For a Telstra or a utility company like an Origin Energy or an Alinta pipeline, for example, they can actually be really useful because we know the interest rates, we know the discount rates, we know the growth rates. And where price does matter, to Doc's point, a 50% range of outcomes is too big to worry about. But something like a, I mean, a gas pipeline or even Sydney Airport or Transurban, something with lots and lots of debt, um, reasonably low amounts of growth, reasonably low variability of growth, maybe it's 25 maybe it's 3.5% a year, that stuff is really useful because you can really work out when a price is attractive, fairly valued or overvalued. But for most companies, and frankly, most companies you want to invest in that are going to give you market beating growth, you're probably not going to find DCF super, super useful if you want to hang on for the long term. How'd I go, Doc? I think you went well. Speaking of going well, we've gone for a very long time, but I am going to shoehorn one last question in because it's also from another lady listener, Melissa. And I wanted to make sure we answered our, our female listeners' questions because we get very few of them and we do desperately want to encourage female investors and female listeners. So, Melissa, thank you. Thank you, Ange, for your question. And thank you, Melissa, for yours. Oh, mate, we've got so many more questions too. I feel terrible about having to wrap this one up. But uh, frankly, we're going to get thrown out of the building if we don't finish up soon. And we both need to go and have some lunch. So, uh, and our listeners probably, there's only so much of us they can take really, isn't there? I think they would, we could do another episode someday. <laughs> Jeez, maybe. We'll see. If you want us to do... An extra, extra mailbag episode. We're not going to do it now, but if you do want some more mailbag, let us know on the socials. I'll give you the socials in a minute. Uh, but you know, I'm actually quite serious, actually, in some senses. Uh, we're not getting through as much as we would otherwise love to, but we do want to do dust just to the questions we answer. If you want more mailbag, we'll happily do it, but also we don't want to bombard your podcast feed. We know, allegedly, there are other podcasts out there. I'm not entirely sure that's true, but on the off chance it might be true, um, we do. Uh, we don't want to clog your feed and we don't want to overstay our welcome. So if you want more mailbag, please let us know. If you're happy with the amount we've got, feel free to let us know that too in nice, you know, positive terms, of course, but feel free to let us know that. So we are really, you know, we want to, we want to deliver what you guys want to listen to. All right, mate, Melissa's question. Hi, guys. Thanks for a great podcast. I really enjoy it. See, Melissa knows. Melissa says, I have a question about shares and mortgages. I have a mortgage of about 223 grand remaining at 2.84%. Well done, Melissa. That's a sensational rate. I reckon you could probably squeeze another couple of percentage points out of them, by the way. So maybe maybe separately to your question, go back to your bank and see if you can get 2.6, 2.5. Give it a go. Let us know how you go. Uh, she says, the mortgage is overpaid by about 50 grand with a redraw facility. I mean, if I took the 50 grand, 50K out, the mortgage would be back to 273,000. I never thought about shares before, but recently started investing. Thanks for your part in that. You're very welcome. It's occurred to me it might be a good idea to take the 50K out and put it on some good quality shares for an ETF for a while, as the return would probably be better than keeping it on the mortgage to avoid the 2.84% on the 50K. I know the risk with this would be the volatility of the share market, but since I would be able to keep the money in the share market for a reasonable amount of time, this seems like a good risk. What do you think? Cheers, Melissa. Again, Melissa, we can't give you personal advice. You've given us lots of personal details, so we need to draw a line between the detail you've given us and the advice we're giving. We can't tell you what you should do. We can't tell anyone with your exact position what they should do or a similar position, but we can talk broadly about the concept of taking a bit of extra repayment, overpayment, out of a, out of a mortgage account and putting it in the market. Doc, what do you say? Well, first I want to congratulate Melissa for actually you know, being ahead on her payments. Is that right? cool? That, that is really cool. Um, and, and by a decent amount, which is really, really awesome. Um, yeah, so I mean, here's like my general rule of thumb is 
like two point, and you probably can get a better rate. I mean, two point eight is pretty. It's good. Stellar. It's, it's good, pretty stellar yeah. rate. Um, yeah. So I mean, if if one doesn't anticipate any issues in continuing to pay, so that's number one, right? I mean, having some buffer is really useful to um, uh, to deal with uh, any you know problems that may arise. If mm-hmm. you know, if there are no issues, you don't anticipate any issues, or you know, you're very comfortable, then. I mean, it, 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 to some extent, it makes sense to try to um, invest some of that amount in in the market. I'd probably go a bit slow. If I was doing it, I'd, I'd you know, not put all of it at one go because, you know, it, mm. one of the things with putting all of the money at one go, I mean, on the long run, yes, the longer you wait, the you, you know, the, the, effectively the poorer you are because the market compounds at a, mm. a pretty decent rate. But at the same time, psychologically, you know, one, one puts, you know, a decent chunk of money at one go. And then, you know, if the market pulls back, you know, the next day or the next month or the next, you know, three months, you you kind of feel a bit crappy. Yeah. And and um, especially if somebody's starting out, you, know, you don't want to feel, you you want to maximize your chances of being invested for the long term. And then in that case, that, that psychological barrier is important. So I just spread out my investments over time. Hopefully in that, in if, if that was happening, then hopefully I'd still maintain some buffer. Uh, I'm a big fan of having some buffer. Um, in in the payment, so that's what I would do. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd go slow, keep some buffer, while building the buffer, and I'd, I'd slowly, you know, put some uh, money into the market largely because I think the market could, you know, even if the market delivers like seven eight percent, you know, you're you, you are um, still better off compared to say like a two point eight percent. Yeah, I mean, effectively, you can get two or three times return, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a, mathematically, it's an easy one. As always, we are little always a little concerned with people who use debt, but in this case, extra payments taken back out if you'd had that in a separate savings account never had it on the mortgage and we're looking for a place to put it and said hey do i put 50 grand else extra on the mortgage or put it in shares uh, mathematically again i'll say this another time i'm gonna drive people nuts the you know mathematically the best option would absolutely be to invest it in the best possible return uh, as doc's already mentioned though you're taking some risk with your lifestyle you're taking some risk with down the track if you lose your job get sick have kids want to take that money and, and and you know maybe use it for something else you haven't got it and you're relying on being able to sell those shares at a reasonable price to do that so there is extra risk in any investment that isn't you know you, you're the 2.8 was an absolute guaranteed return plus by the way you're saving some tax on the return you'd make if you had it in shares so there's probably the equivalent of three and a half ish which is not huge either by the way but it is it is more than just the 2.84 because it's effectively tax-free that that gain you're making um i think the other thing i'd probably just say melissa quickly is you say a reasonable amount of time um, and you said you know, put it in shares on ETF for a while. I want to be really clear here. You should be looking at least five years um, because in, in three and a half years, four years, four and a half years, the market might fall 40%, and that 50 grand might be what? By then, hopefully, it's gone up by more than that. But if the market fell 40% tomorrow, that 50 grand is all of a sudden worth, what, 26, 28? That's a, that's a painful loss, right? Like if you lose 20 grand on that, you're going to be, you know, sending us a nasty email saying, what the hell did you guys do? I had 50 grand now, I got 28. You know, why do others new guys in the first place? Um, so when you say for a while, before you say a reasonable amount of time, we're saying five years plus, right? So this has got to be something where if the market was to fall at some point in the next five years, you'd be prepared for that and you'd, you'd be okay to let that ride. If it fell by 40% tomorrow, frankly, you know, I think there's a very, very good chance it's worth more than 50 grand in five years time. So I think you'll well and truly make that back and more. Now, no guarantees. The market could stay low for a very long time. Nobody knows. But generally speaking, that's a pretty good bet, historically speaking. Um, So a reasonable amount of time, yes, but please make it at least five years. If you're not sure or you can't commit to that, I'd actually leave it in the mortgage because at least then it's guaranteed saving, right? And you're 50 grand closer to paying off the house. So 
if it, if it makes sense to you to do that, then by all means do it. Uh, but please do it on a long-term time frame. Any more, Doc? I have nothing to add to that. So many more emails that I just can't get to. Thoughts, thank you very much for, uh, as our co-founder David Gardner mentioned, you mentioned David Gardner earlier, Doc. Thank you for suffering some fools gladly. Uh, we really appreciate your time. We know that you have precious time. You have a lot of other things you could be doing. And the fact you're spending it with us with a mailbag episode, no less. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And we hope we've added some value to your lives. It may be educated, maybe informed, maybe entertained you just a little bit. Um, we try and make it a bit of fun and we try and have fun while we're doing it. We certainly enjoy it. Hopefully you do too. Before we go, don't forget you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And it helps other people find the podcast. If you give us some stars and throw us a review, it genuinely does make a difference. Um, the algorithms that iTunes and others use these reviews and ratings to help work out what to push up the charts. And it helps people who are looking for investing or money podcasts to find this one rather than something else. So if you're enjoying it and listening to it, hopefully that means other people will as well. And that rating will help them find the podcast. As I said before, we don't get any money for doing this, so other than our regular salaries. Um, but it, it just it, you know, helps helps other people find it, and if you've benefited from it, then hopefully they will too. Don't forget, you can also get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's been no mean feat for Doc. He's been struggling with a bad throat, and he's valiantly pushed through, mate. So thank you very much for doing that on behalf of our listeners. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week on Tuesday with some money hacks on Friday with another dose of regular Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.